welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm Dave Cohen. And I'm James Carey. And this is episode 150. And uh, we're delighted to welcome a pair of comedy legends. Uh, They've been writing comedy at the top levels, getting on for 40 years now, uh, bringing a string of hit comedy shows, including Drop the Dead Donkey and Outnumbered, which was turned into the movie What We Did on Our Holidays with uh, Billy Connolly, and uh, working apart as well on shows like uh, Shelley and Life on Mars and their own hits Bedtime and Jeffrey Archer The Truth. Uh, Recently, um, they wrote uh, Kate and Koji, which is ITV's first audience since I don't know when, and uh, I've got to think there's a new series coming on its way, so please welcome Guy Jenkin and Andy Hamilton. Yay! Hello! And um, I want to start really by asking you each, um, when you were sort of, when you were growing up, what were your favourite shows? Gotten and Simpson, Steptoe and Son, probably was the, was the, the, the one that most influenced me, that I, you know, admired and laughed at. Um, I often think that, you know, people remember the 60s with lots of, you know, supposedly cutting edge plays. But I think now if you wanted a picture of what life was like then, I, I, I think that um, Stepton Son would, would tell you more than anything. Definitely. That's definitely one of my uh, all time favourites. And, uh, and uh, Andy, what about you? Well, I would also put Stepton Son at the, at the top of my list, actually. Um, as the sort of the sitcom that I first remember watching and getting hooked uh, to. And, yeah, because it it works at so many levels. I mean, it's very funny and the characters are brilliant, but it, it, it has so many layers to it. And um, so I think that's sort of like the the masterpiece of British sitcom. But I do, funny enough, I do remember watching um, Hancock on TV because... I remember my mum and dad were kind of addicted to watching it and I was allowed just of watching him and, and um, I was given the script of the blood donor. There's a book of Hancock scripts that had the blood donor, the one about the the, the, um, the, the omens, the radio app. And I remember getting, you know, getting really into that. So, so Gordon and Simpson would be... Yeah, would be that they were my earliest influence as well. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and how how did you guys actually uh, meet up? We met. Um, well, I think I think the very first time we met, Guy wrote a show, which was being a sketch, a review. It was being performed in Cambridge, and I left because I'm. It's hard to believe I'm a bit older than Guy. I know that's hard to credit, but. So I came to see the show and then I think we had a chat and afterwards I said I'd started writing um, on Weekending and I think we had a conversation about whether he wanted to go that and I said, well, look me up when you when you come to London and um, and then Guy did come to London and then he was looking for somewhere to stay and we had a tiny room in our house, the, the house that I was sharing with uh, five others and it probably was illegal to put someone in that room because it was so tiny and it had no windows but guy moved into that room so he was in our house uh, so that's my memory of it is that right guy is that roughly yeah right? i think so i mean i i actually i mean thanks to you saying that i spent quite a lot of my third year at university sleeping on people's sofas up in London and, and writing for Weekending, um, which sort of seemed just more interesting than my degree at the time. And, um, yeah, no, and then you said you had a room. I had no idea where Herne Hill was, uh, but I understood it was in London, uh, which was just about right. So, um, yeah, I, I took the room. So you be, you began writing uh, for Weekending, what, when you were 19? Oh, I no, I can't can't remember ages. Third, my third year at university. Yeah. Okay. And and so so um, was that really how you kind of got? Well, you you were both at Oxford University. Is that correct? Another one. Of course. Yes, you were at Cambridge. I remember you were at Cambridge now because you were with in a group with um, Paul Mayhew Archer that wasn't Footlights, if I recall. Is that correct? Yeah, we were in the in the Natalie named Cambridge University Light Entertainment Society. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> It was a charity that goes for 
um, children's homes, prisons, old people's homes, people who couldn't get away, basically. It did show, we did show them, but it used to fund itself by putting on the odd commercial review. Yeah, Paul, Paul Mayo Archer was, was the funniest man in Cambridge. I mean, he was an astonishing stage performer. Um, he doesn't do much of that, so much of that. And although he has got a show at the moment he's touring with about um, Parkinson's, but um, no, he was an amazing performer. Yeah. My question is, when you first sort of met and started doing comedy, how did you, because it's almost like being married, isn't it? How did you kind of fall in love with Not each bad other? As what did, but what did you like? Because I'm in a writing partnership with another guy and I think I'm lucky to have him and he's lucky and he thinks he's lucky to have me Yeah. because we're both good at different things. But what initially, why did you think the other one was a good fit for you? Or I guess you don't really think about these things at the time, but looking back, yeah. do you have any thoughts? We never really made a decision that we're going to write together. Um, we worked on on various shows. Um, I mean, I think notably um, Who Dares Wins, which was a sketch show where the writers used to sort of pair up in lots of different partnerships. And um, I suppose we really enjoyed writing together. Um, I mean, had the same sense of humour and... and eventually actually started formally writing together but it was if you're saying it was like a sort of falling in love it was a very it was a very long friendship that yeah eventually... yeah we drifted we collaborated so much so often on other programs and then we we sort of i think the first moment where we there was literally a guy jenkin and andy hamilton credit on something was we were writing an episode shelley and they wanted to do a, a christmas one but there were, it was a question of who would do it. And so I think we thought, well, why don't we, you know, do it together? So we did, a, That's I think that's right, isn't it? I think that was the first time we were joined. Yeah, yeah I've, I've, I've forgotten, but I think you're right. Yeah. And we were both very punctual, which is very rare in writers. Yeah. So that was, that, was a, that was a plus, I think. I can't think of anybody else who would have turned up on time. So That was our biggest asset. I came to um, BBC Radio um, in about 1983, and um, you were just known as uh, the legends of uh, writing, who just who written everything, and your names were always kind of uh, mentioned in, in in hushed tones, and we wondered yeah. who who were these gods, and then you know you used to kind of come in, Andy, I remember particularly, you, you, you loved coming into the writer's room. And, and also, I remember you doing that a lot of, uh, um, Have I Got News? That you just love to kind of come in and chat about the news and, and, and whatever, really. I think we both like chatting about the news, don't we, Guy? We both like getting Yeah, Yeah, if, we, if we'd have written a lot more if we hadn't chatted about the news so much, frankly. But, uh, but no, we do. We've got that interest. And, and I suppose... Uh, the experience on weekending where you had to, um, you know, write a lot of stuff very, very quickly has kind of informed quite a few things we've done since then, you know, obviously up to Drop the Dead Donkey and, uh, um, you know, Election Spy, uh, Power Monkeys, the, the, the election shows we did. So, yeah, I mean, it's just it's something I suppose I mean, like. Looking back, I mean, weekending, if you were going to design a show to train writers it was pretty perfect because you know the sketches were what a maximum of about one minute 40 was about the maximum length wasn't it and they had to be about something they had to be they had to carry a, a point you know there had to be an argument to them and they had to have really they they were meant to have really good dialogue and funny well that's such a, a tight brief to have that as our grounding, I think, was was hugely valuable. And then there was, I mean, you would have had this as well, Dave. There were there were was a procession of producers, but some of the producers were really good at pushing you to try and make something a little bit better. So, so I think we benefited from that sort of um, slightly sort of uh, not perfectionist, but sort of um, purist attempt to get it as good as you can you know uh, and, and you know we kept working with some of those producers that yeah. still are yeah. in many years so that was a yeah. 
two things we often say to writers who are starting out, um, and we, 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 we name uh, certain movies like what we did on our holidays or Wallace and Gromit and Madagascar, uh, Arthur Christmas, Alpha Papa, whatever, and what links these movies? Well, they were all written by uh, people who started out writing one-line jokes for weekending or whatever the topical equivalent was. Uh, yeah. Uh, and the other thing as well, saying that, you know, when you start at those shows, you meet these young producers in their 20s who are looking for writers and who, who've got a career ahead of them as yeah. p- producers. And I guess that's, I mean, your relationship, presumably that's where you began your relationship with uh, Jimmy Mulville, who then went on to form Hattrick, yeah? Yeah. Uh, Jimmy arrived a little bit. I mean, when I first went there, uh, I, I was approached by Jeffrey Perkins, who'd seen a show I'd done and suggested that I should try writing for a living. Um, and so I think when Guy started, was Jeffrey still producing when you started, Guy? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, uh, a few shows, yeah. Um, uh, and he was, you know, a terrific producer, very, both very encouraging and very, yeah, you know, knowledgeable. Yeah, he was brilliant. And then... Um, yeah, and then we had uh, Griffiths Jones produced it for a while, and he was he was great because he had so much energy, and he you know always wanted to sort of look for new ideas. And then uh, and then Jimmy came along, who was also very good, and there were some who were not so good, but we'll gloss over those. But it was uh, I've come to appreciate it more and more as the years go by. I mean, you talk about about writers moving on from there. And I think you should warn them what they'll find is that, you know, you're right for radio. And then people say, well, you're really a radio writer. You can't work for TV. And then they'll say, you know, are you really a, a sketch writer? You can't do sitcoms. Or then you're a sitcom writer. You can't do drama. And then it'll go all the way around. And they'll say, aren't you a drama writer? You don't really do comedy. You know what I mean? So, but, so you, you people too get, do can, then tend to get pigeonholed. But you can you can move from one thing to another. As Andy said, I mean, the the discipline of writing tight, short sketches in a short time, I mean, I think is is a fantastic start for most writers. I mean, there'll be some who who aren't suited to that, but... I would say that it's, it's kind of evident that now lots of writers are coming through lots of other different places. And so I read an awful lot of scenes in sitcom scripts where it's quite clear the writer doesn't know how to write a scene. Um, And a scene is basically a a sketch, isn't it, with a beginning and a middle and an end. And so people are kind of accessing and coming into sitcom from all these different places. And that sketch work, you know, really does give you the nuts and bolts of it. I think part of the problem might be that quite a lot of, um, and, and to some extent, you know, TV executives were responsible for this. They became obsessed with writer performers. And the problem the problem can be with writer performers is they're really only interested in writing something that enables the, a performance. So that's what interests them, you know, is, is a piece that can give them a, a platform for a performance. Um, and not many of them also have a kind of strong editorial muscle whereby they say, right, what's the core of this scene? What's it about? How do I drive it? You know, so I think that's been, that may have created a sort of slightly scruffy, overlong kind of style of writing in some people, yeah. I mean, there are brilliant exceptions, we should yeah. say. I mean, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge or somebody else much, you know, lauded, but I mean, you know, she may have started as a writer performer, but she is brilliant writer yeah yeah and i think that that um also when you are a performer you're very you're extremely good at being yourself or that that character that you've been playing for years um but i mean i know i i I think of a show like uh, bedtime which i remember which i think you had uh like james bolam was in that and um timothy west i remember in that and uh, just just that um that there's there seems to have been less of a sense that uh, of these people working in comedy, and, and do, do you think it's more that the, the writer performer uh, became such a big thing that the sort of TV executives 
preferred that. It's, it's almost like going for uh, newspapers, going for opinions rather than news. It's it's sort of quicker yeah. and and cheaper, but not not so good in the long term. Well, I suppose it's it's sort of easier in some way, isn't it? You find a, a writer performer, but you know, it will it'll swing back again. I'm sure. You know, like all these things do. Like you know, I mean, it's interesting that thing of. I don't know about you guys, but I remember on Not the Nine O'Clock News when we were writing on that, which was a very exciting show in many ways, you know, and I'd been working at telly writing for big comedians like Les Dawson and Dave Allen and people like that. And I, and I was enjoying it up to a point. But the moment where I really started to get excited was when Not the Nine O'Clock News started. And I remember walking into the office of the producers, John Lloyd and Sean Hardy one day, and I'd written this sketch and I said, well, I've written this. I said, I like it, but it involves filming with a lot of dolphins. And, you know, on all, all the other shows I'd worked on, I knew that that wouldn't be countenance. And because they were new and they were, you know, they were keen and, and they said, oh, yeah, we'll have a go at that. So we did. We, we filmed it. And that was exciting. But I do remember on that show always hoping that my sketch would be given to uh, Mel and Griff rather than Rowan not because Rowan is a brilliant comedian and and a terrific comic actor but something used to happen when you gave sketches to Rowan which was that somehow the the idea would get slightly bent in order to facilitate a comic performance from Rowan and it would always be very funny but you kind of look at it and you think well what you've got there is a great performance but it's not as good a piece it's not the sketch is not quite as perfect as it should be and um and i think that's the as writers what we've always craved is com- actors who are brilliant technicians in comedy you know and there are there are luckily we are quite rich in this country um i work with an american writer quite often jay tarsis and he always says you don't know you're born you know he said over here you have so many brilliant actors with high comedic skills and he said we don't have that and he felt they didn't have that then so um but i think that's the that was always the kind of the weaponry you're looking for is is actors who just have a natural ear for comic dialogue and and who who instinctively understand where the joke is what was the sort of journey then from that, that you, you worked a lot on weekending and you'd done a lot of uh, topical comedy and it, it sort of almost feels like a natural progression towards Drop the Dead Donkey. But how did that, uh, how, how, how did you progress uh, to getting that on, to, on air mm. uh, and then through the various series? Well, we, we, we came up with the idea um, which... I don't know. I think we tend to go with ideas. I mean, a huge number get discarded, but just occasionally we have sort of two ideas that are very similar. And or, or and and I think that was the case with that and outnumbered. And then we kind of managed to fuse them somehow. Um, and initially we, uh, well, we, we, we wrote a pilot for the BBC um, and we said, look, it's got lots of topical jokes in it. Um, we'll write it as if it's for, I think it was a week in April or something, and we'll say we'll write it as if it's for that week. So you read it and then you'll get the the, the impression um, of it being a top of comedy. And three months later, they hadn't read it. Um, they finally did, um, and they didn't want to do it. Um, but then... No, they, they said, uh, they, the, I remember the response, it was, well, it, it's quite good, but we don't think the topical stuff works, was what they said. Actually, I missed the comic line there. Uh. And was that because also it wasn't April anymore, or was it because they just didn't no, like the topicality? They of hadn't it, read or... it on the day, you know, we, we said to them, we'd even yeah. rung their PAs and said, can you make yeah. sure they read it today because they've got to imagine that it's going out tonight. And... A script that they've presumably paid a few thousand pounds for. Ah, no, well, you see, that was the mistake because ah. <laughs> me and Guy, me and Guy, as you can imagine, we were a little bit miffed when we got that response. And the one thing they had forgotten to do was conclude a contract and pay us. So that meant we were completely free. So we just thought, right, we're not, not, and so we just took it away immediately and we went straight to Channel 4 and 
Seamus Cassidy, I think he commissioned a script within about 72 hours. Um, and in fact, he commissioned three or four, was it, Guy? And then he extended... Three or four to start with, and then ten. Yeah. I mean, which is an extraordinary leap of faith. Yeah. Well, at that point, um, you're sort of saying, make it stop, aren't you? No, no, it was brilliant, because... <laughs> We had a lot of characters and we knew that we would need a lot of shows to establish those characters. But, um, yeah, but that was the contrast between um, between that sort of dithering at the BBC and a very... I mean, in those days, Channel 4 was, you know, could be very fleet-footed, you know, and um, so that was how it didn't end up on the BBC. And the other thing they gave us, which was brilliant, was they gave us a, an off-air pilot. Um, so we did a full show um, with with an audience, um, and which was never going to be broadcast. Um, so that you know, it, 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 we knew it was going to be quite a difficult thing to work out how we fitted in the, the topical lines. You know, it's going to be difficult for the actors, some of whom haven't worked with an audience before, and everything like that. So uh, I mean, that that really helped us. I think that that, that was. Um, you know, very far-sighted. And it gave Liddy Oldroyd, the director, a chance to... She had lots of really original ideas for how to shoot it to make it look more original. Um, and it gave her a chance to try those out, you know, and um, perfect them. And um, so so that was, yeah, off-air pilots. I mean, they're very rare nowadays for economic reasons mostly, but it was... It was invaluable, yeah. I'd be really interested to know, because obviously by this point you were quite experienced of lots of different genres and comedy. I'd love to know what you learnt, particularly writing that first series. Uh, what Was there stuff that was unexpectedly hard and was there stuff that actually you, you thought would be hard and wasn't as hard as you thought? Oh, I can't remember what I was thinking. Can you, Guy? Uh, um... <laughs> it's, it's all those things are all a bit of a car crash. Cause you yeah. Just... Dealing with the dealing with the next thing, and I think we became much better at fitting the topical material in. Yeah, you know, in scripts rather than saying they now talk about what's in the news. You know, you would have a plot that hinged on something in the news, and you would um, you would fill in the news story, and um, so that that kind of made it mesh much better. Um, you know, and you could because as I mean, as you'll know, with any any series it's much easier to write when you see when you've seen the actors do it mm. because you know you can you can use their skills you can see what they're brilliant at and then you can try and and, and work it that way so yeah i mean we we both knew our way around production um you know so that side of it we were we were well versed in and we did briefly have our own independent production company. And we made a, a pilot for the then recently um, franchised Central TV. And although that pilot um, failed um, because one of our, act our actors fell off the wagon rather dramatically, um, that probably wasn't the only reason. But, but we learned a lot from that. I mean, and crucially... The thing we learned was that we didn't really want to run an independent production company. So when when Hattrick was formed, we knew that Denise O'Donoghue was a brilliant um, deal maker and administrator because she co-produced on Who Dead Wins. So so we kind of thought, well, let's let's use their expertise and then we can concentrate on the show itself. I think writers like the idea of having lots of power. And we look at America and go, showrunners seem to be in control of absolutely everything. Yeah. But then again, you are opening yourself up to an unbelievably large number of boring meetings looking at spreadsheets. Yeah. And you've got to think to yourself, is that really what you want? And you guys kind of looked into that abyss and sort of stepped away from it by the sounds of it. On, on Drop the Dead Donkey, we did, we, you know, we were producers who went through the budget line by line um, and really looked at the nuts and bolts of it. And I think we don't really do that anymore. Um, but, you know, but it's given us, it, it was really useful because, you know, when you, when you have conversations where, 
where a producer trying to help you but saying that we, we can't really afford that you know you can you can try and find you, you you can know what's really important and know what you have to sacrifice in order to make what's important happen so so having been having had that experience i mean you know andy was ahead of me there and that he he produced um uh, who dares wins and 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 was already very um sort of knowledgeable as a producer but um that actually i think has 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 been invaluable i mean on the film we made it was invaluable you know but i think there's a there's an important thing i think that sometimes when i go on i haven't done one for a while but if you go and talk to writers course and stuff which is which is there is a kind of emotional position that you can get in as a writer that i know i did and i, I don't know whether guy had the same experience which was that I got to a stage where I felt that I was writing works of genius that were then somehow being ruined in production. So I saw production as as a, a hazardous process because in those days writers were not welcomed at rehearsals. We were we were kept at arm's length, um, and in fact, I mean, I I had an experience at Thames where. Um, I was working with a new director and he said the way I, you know, I thought I should be, you know, show a bit of humility. So I said, how do you like work? And he said, well, I like to have the writer there for the read through and then like the writer to go away so that we can work on it with the actors. And then the writers come back for what we call the writer's run. He said a couple of days later. So I thought, fair enough. So I went to the read through, made a few changes, went back a few days later and sat there and they started rehearsing. And in the first scene, the lead character came in on roller skates and you know i hadn't written this in and it, and basically every line of dialogue was getting killed because he had to get to his position and so at the end of the run the director turned to me and said how how was that for you they were producer directors then at Thames as well they did both jobs and i said well i don't think the roller skates work do they because and uh, i said i think that's it just doesn't work and he looked at me and said well they've learned it now and and I think that was probably the moment where the, the thought started to crystallise in my mind. You know, I need to understand production, you know. And and the brilliant thing, I'm working on Not the Nine O'Clock, not the nine o'clock News, there have been a day when they've been very busy and John Lloyd had asked me to pop across and see the film editor, a guy called Zach Hefney, to see how they were getting on with the film editor. And Zach was sort of assembling the script, the sketches in a rather eccentric way. But but gradually I, I came to realise that you need to embrace editing, you need to understand editing, and you need to understand everyone else's problems. You know, it's no good sitting there thinking, oh, they bloody ruined that, when actually what you wrote was unfilmable, you know, or, or created huge problems for sound. Or So I think what what the fact that we by then got backgrounds in production was we did understand problems when when someone comes to you and says you know that's terribly difficult is there another way of doing it you know the the desire to direct comes partly from the very positive side of of you know just loving working with actors and and um but also from from some negative experiences i mean i i wrote a film where um I don't know. The, the the director had never done any comedy before, and um, you know he made he made the lead actress cry on the very first take, which wasn't a great start. Um, and actors sort of started coming to me and saying, "What do we do?" And um, he came and said, "Well, you, I'm going to kick you off the set if you keep talking to the actors." So I said, "All right, I won't talk to the actors." But they still sort of tried to sort of sneak over and say. And I got seen doing this and I was gone. So, um, although apparently I'd lasted longer than any other writer on his set, so he wasn't exactly. But experiences like that made me think, well, uh, you know, if you're going to write something, you have to see it through. You, you, you have to, uh, I mean, there's probably a slight degree of megalomania there, but, but also, you know, if, if it's going to turn, it's much better to spend a lot more time on one project and to, you know, get it, get it right. And, um, you know, if it's, if it's terrible, then it's you fucked it up. But, you know, at least, um, 
you know that's that's better than than watching something and thinking that's nothing like what I wrote. Uh, we should say we have worked with some brilliant directors, you know, who we we've, we've found ourselves in in harmony with. You know, I mean, we had Liddy Oldroyd on Drop the Dead Donkey, who was you know a, a fantastic and very original and brilliant with people, and uh, you know, and um, so we, you know, we it wasn't solely that we were power mad, but being power mad was part of it. Yeah. But then you, uh, I, I, I remembered that you had done um, a lot of directing, but I'd forgotten about the the producing role as well. And uh, it does seem quite a lot of uh, writers, uh, very successful writers, who then go on to uh, produce and and direct, move away from uh, writing. But you you guys have kind of stuck with it. Would you say you know is it do you say always begin and end with the writing for you? Yes, but yes, I think that, yeah. I mean, we haven't done much of that thing of creating a show and then farming it out, you know, I think, because we, that's the sort of, we'd miss out on the fun bit then. Yeah, I mean, the writing, the writing is the, well, it's the the creation, you know, despite writers being relegated by BAFTA to the Craft Awards, you know, I think that, yeah. you know, it, it, it is the first act of creation of, of anything. Hello, James here. Hope you're enjoying this classic episode for episode 150. Sorry the audio is a little bit scrappy in places. We had hoped to record this interview in person, but you know the pandemic? Yeah, well, that. Anyway, you didn't really think we'd get through an entire podcast without mentioning Patreon, did you? Actually, after 150 episodes, Dave and I would like to thank Patreon members for keeping us on the air. Without you guys, we would almost certainly have packed it all in by now. But that special relationship we have, as well as a few dollars a month, really helps us keep going. So thank you very much indeed to our Patreon subscribers. If you're wondering what you really get for your monthly subscription on Patreon, at the very basic level, beyond the warm glow of helping your fellow man you get an exclusive extra episode a month, which we record with our Patreons live on Zoom. And you can get in on that and ask us anything related to writing comedy sitcoms or making your own stuff, and we will answer. So that's an extra episode a month. And you get access to that along with um, hours and hours of extra audio, back episodes of that extra podcast and uh, episodes of our sitcom Soup to Nuts series, where we're writing a sitcom from scratch. And the audio version of my book, Writing That Sitcom, and early access to other episodes we've yet to release, plus access to a private Facebook group that Dave and I are always dropping in on because it's much more fun than the polarised, poisonous actual Facebook. So Google Patreon Sitcom Geeks and you'll find more information. Actually, if you join at the governor level, you'll be able to submit the first 10 pages of a script and Dave and I will read it and do a mini podcast about it, again, just for Patreon subscribers. There's a back catalogue of lots of those episodes too. Plus, until the end of this year, 2020, you'll get access to my comprehensive new video course, which is going to be released as a standalone course next year. That's called Writing Your Sitcom, the aim of which is to get a sitcom script written that you're actually proud of and shows what you can do. Anyway, Google Patreon Sitcom Geeks and you'll find us. That's it from me. Back to the interview with legends Guy Jenkin and Andy Hamilton. But presumably, you you notice a very big difference writing for radio compared with uh, writing for TV. And did that uh, was 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 that kind of part of the uh, the issue when you first started uh, going into TV writing? I think because the TV had been my best friend when I was a kid. You know, sorry, that sounds actually sound pathetic. I mean, I did <laughs> massive massive amounts of TV, so I think you know there was a certain amount of literacy but the first stuff i did for telly was at bbc at television center and i was working um myself and another writer terry ravenscroft terry ravenscroft we were co-opted into write for les dawson because they bought a format from america there was a show called alan king's final warning and um me and terry and it was turned into the dawson watch 
and the the conceit was that Les was in a bunker looking out at all the insanities of the modern world. So so Terry and I were brought in to write sketches about modern life. And I think um, I don't remember having many sketches thrown back at me with people saying that's far too radio, you know. So I think by then, um, and maybe, I mean, personally, I sometimes feel that the differences between writing for TV and radio are slightly overcooked, you know. I remember going to uh, uh, talk to a writer's course and they, they'd been given lots of rules. They said, oh, we had a bloke and he gave us the nine rules. And I said, really, what, what are these nine rules? And one of them was um, show, don't tell. But, of course, in comedy, some things are better reported than seen, you know, and, and you'll find in both mine and Guy's work, both together and independently, you will find scenes that are very effective comic scenes where they're funny because the character gives you the information in stages, um, which is a radio technique. Um, but, um, but I'm not sure that the, the, the fundamentals are, are the same. Um, to do with you know character and rhythms in dialogue and stuff like that. So I don't know. What do you think? No, I, 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 th- I think all those all those um, differences are are, um, are exaggerated. You know, between radio and TV, between TV and film. I think it's sometimes used as a sort of ring fence to oh no, you can't join our world. But and and between comedy and drama. I mean, you know, if you if you look at the some of the great dramas at the moment, Succession and The Joker, that were written by people that came from comedy, I believe. I think The Joker was, wasn't it? Um, anyway, you know, I, I, I think that, that all, all, all the differences in, in detail are, are, are much exaggerated. Hmm. I sometimes wonder if um, the, it's something that people feel that they have to say because they have to say something. Yeah. And and I had this conversation and you probably obviously know Saskia a little bit. Yeah, yeah. When cuz Sas- Saskia is a thoroughly delightful human being and on this podcast she said I like to tell the readers I write, I like to tell the writers why we didn't go with their show. And I said, "Oh, I, I wouldn't bother doing that if I were you because there's only one reason and it's you didn't like it." And um fundamentally it's like, "Well, it could have been more this or could have been more that." As a writer you go, "Well, I could fix that." Yeah. But actually, the only reason, and if they say we didn't have any slots, it's like, yeah, but if you loved it, yeah. you'd find the money, wouldn't you? Yeah. So there's only one reason. Is that fair? Was I being a bit mean to Saskia there? Uh, no. I mean, I think her instinct was a very humane one, which is that she she wants, she presumably wanted to signal that it was a difficult decision, that, you know. Um, but yes, you're you're right. I mean, Jimmy Mulville always says that no is his second favorite answer, doesn't he? And uh, because he's a quick no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. rather yeah. than get stuck in that maelstrom of uh, kind of them not quite making their minds up whether they like it enough or not. Yeah. Um, I think the, uh, the the most um, shocking thing in that interview that we did with Saskia was that you know, here was a sort of a commissioning editor, and she said to us, she said, "I like working with writers," and we yeah. thought, "What?" <laughs> I think that 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 threw me quite a lot as well, really, because you know the commissioning process does sometimes seem to be quite a lot removed. Guy, you were saying that writing is the first is is the first part of the creation, and yet. Um, in fact, I heard one commissioner recently on a panel saying, "We're not buying writers; we're we're buying shows." Um, mm. So I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I think Saskia's a bit of a throwback in a way, in the sense that um, she believes in having a proper creative relationship with the writers, you know. Um, and sh- so there's a, she there's an investment uh, on her part as a person. And um, whereas, you know, you, there, there, there are some commissioning editors who do it all by email, basically. Well, I guess, I mean, she must be a bit of a throwback because let's talk about Kate and Koji. Mm. Um, 
what the heck's that doing on ITV1? Um, <laughs> by, by which I mean, yeah. it's a really proper old studio sitcom with actual proper jokes in it that just feel it's it's a lovely, lovely show. Thank you. Um, really enjoyable. And you just think, I I'd, I'd thought ITV would stopped doing this and I thought that they were determined to stop doing it. And Kevin Ligo had made some very public statements about, about comedy, which were not terribly encouraging. Yeah. So, and it would seem to me that it would be obvious that either ITV or BBC would, would, would say to, to say to you two guys, whatever you would like to do is pretty much going to be fine by us. Please come and do it and let us know what it is. Um, but they don't. No. Um, so, so how how did this show get on TV? It should be obvious, given that these are the guys who did drop the dead donkey and outnumbered, and we're just getting started. But every show has to really fight to get on TV, yeah. which I suppose is a healthy thing in some ways. So, how did that get on? How did it get on? Uh, <laughs> okay. But, uh, yeah. Well, that process you describe, people often say that people outside the industry, you know. A guy will have had this experience as well. You'd be so they go and they go. Oh, I bet you just have to knock on the door with an idea, don't you? And I can't remember what number of ideas. Often in script form, we submitted to BBC after outnumbered. But how many? Have you got an idea, guy? Of how many it was? It, it was. It's certainly well over fifteen scripts. I yeah, would say the, the, maybe seventeen in that uh, region. So, so in other words, we always felt that the, what they were saying to us was that basically we were right about outnumbered, but clearly that was a jammy long shot. You know, what, it's 18 to one against whether or not we've got an idea that will work. But um, with Kate and Koji, there was a kind of rather sort of touching human side to it, which was we'd done another script, which ITV really liked, and which got a long way. Um, and we did a read through for it. And Kevin was really, really tempted. And there was a feeling at Hattrick that, oh, this was gonna this was gonna happen. And then at the very last minute, Kevin just decided, um, oh, I'm not quite sure. And he he passed. And we were having a conversation about it, and then we just thought, well, we sensed that there was maybe a little bit of guilt. Uh, about it, so don't did, don't don't say this in public, Andy. Oh, well, don't I, put no, that on the record. That's a sort of. Thing. <laughs> I think Saskia particularly really liked that script, and I think had really wanted it to happen. So I think it was me being sort of maybe the more cynical individual. I said we might as well bung something in, you know, and just see. So we we submitted Kate and Koji, um, and it was a bit of a hail mary in some ways. But then I think because we had the idea of putting Brenda in it and giving them a little bit of anchorage and security. And luckily, Saskia loved that script as well. So she was very up for trying to to run with it. And then we had some quite funny meetings with Kevin, didn't we, where Kevin was almost daring himself to sort of take the plunge, wasn't he? And then he was was kind of rehearsing the ups and downs in front of it, you know. But he did. So yeah. but, uh, we should point out that we, we when Andy said Bre- we, we chose Brenda, I mean, we didn't do that to get it on ITV. No. We did that because right. we worked with her. And when that idea of her came up, we just thought, oh, so she's, she's perfect for this. Yeah. And, you know, we've always wanted to work with her again. Yeah. So. But, um, but uh, yeah, so, um, so it got on because of Saskia's perseverance. And I think I think there was part of the Kevin Ligo thought where I think he liked it and he thought, what the heck, let's go with it. You know, so but we're hoping I mean, you know, ITV used to be a place where a lot of comedy got, you know, got done. And uh, we, we kind of hoping that 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 it will continue to be a home for because, as you say, they, they got down to about one year, haven't mm. they? But I mean, that's um, doing a doing an audience show in 2019. Just uh, that 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 in, in itself, let, let alone the ITV aspect, which which, which yeah. was uh, which was the first surprise. ITV are taking comedy; they're yeah. doing an audience sitcom. I mean, there must have been. I mean, when was the last time that you you had written an audience sitcom? Was it was it uh, 
Drop the dead donkey. Yeah. 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 It was. What? I mean, I I think that there's there's so many sort of comedies that are very near dramas and and maybe not actively so funny. Um, but I, I I think doing the sort of an audience sitcom now is actually should be considered at the cutting edge of comedy. Yeah. I think that that it's I think that it's flipped now. You know that is. Um, it's certainly more striking now if you do one, isn't it? Because I mean, there's yeah, there was Upstart Crow. Uh, I mean, there's so few, there's so few now that it becomes an original choice, you know. Can I just say, despite your experience, do you still get the terror though with the studio audience, and until you get that first laugh, you know, because it, yeah, it's still pretty nerve wracking, isn't it? Uh, yeah, um, that's health. I guess that's healthy. It keeps you honest in the in the in the writers' room, doesn't it? Yeah. And it, I mean, it's adrenaline. Yeah, that adrenaline. I, I, I enjoyed re-experiencing that adrenaline rush. I mean, guy, guy stays in the box and kind of keeps an eye on everything up there. But I, I do the warm up, which is my way of sort of, you know. And so I kind of stay in touch. So I get a very real sense of the audience, you know. And and when we were doing the first one, I. I do remember thinking oh, I've really missed this feeling of lots of attentive souls in the audience the lights go down and suddenly there you can feel their engagement you know and um so what watching them do that first scene in front of an audience was a great uh a great buzz you know and a really great tonic you know you just thought this is this is the appeal of doing an audience sitcom you know yeah, I mean, it, it that a week building to a performance is 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 terrific. I mean, I suppose it takes you back to almost doing stage shows and things like that, stage reviews. Um, so there's sort of that on on the positive side, and I think the audience it, it keeps you honest about um, being funny. Yeah, because you can't you can't write four pages where there's not a joke that the audience will laugh at uh. because. You know, it'll sound very odd. And it's a wonderfully, I mean, all filming is collaborative, but on a studio day, the, the, the level of problem solving just goes through the roof. You know, if, if the cast and crew are all really united and there's a good atmosphere and they're working together, you know, you look at the ground that gets covered in one of those days and the, the problem solving is so, and so, you know, when you come off afterwards, if it's gone well, the cast are obviously pleased, it's gone well, the show's gone well, their performance has gone well, but also the crew as well. It's a performance for them. You know, if a boom swinger has got to some really difficult boom swing the length of the set and he's made it on the night and he didn't make it at the dress, you know, that's... Um, so you can feel it in the bar when you talk to the crew. You can feel that, that, that they've also been involved in it. Like Guy said, it's like a, a theatrical event, yeah. Do you think and and would you like to be uh, pitching more audience sitcoms now? Well, yeah. I think it's just you, you get an idea and it just depend depends where you think or how you think this would work. Um, I mean, I don't think we didn't really kind of think we want to do an audience sitcom. I think we 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 came up with this idea and then thought, well, actually. Mm. This would work well in front of an audience. Yeah. I mean, uh, partly because it's got that, you know, it can be based in that in that one set. But I think possibly also because it has got a little bit of political edge and somehow that it, it kind of, I mean, disguises it is the wrong word, but you, you don't, I think you, you certainly would never feel you're being preached at in an audience, in an audience sitcom. Because there's, there's there's laughter there. I mean, the sort of laughter justifies it. Yeah. So I, I think they were probably the. I don't know. Were that the two reasons? Most, you know, the biggest reasons we we. I think I think we'd also had various conversations, didn't we, where we said oh, it'd be nice to do one again. You know, I think there was that as well. But I mean, they're all. I mean, all the different forms have their have their place but i mean but a, an audience sitcom that works does command extraordinary audience loyalty you know uh, the commitment 
of an audience is is really strong. But I mean, it isn't. Do you know Steve Doherty runs this um, uh, the festival down in Giddy Goat, Conway Bay? Yeah, and uh, I went down there once. He was doing, um, and he he said we're going to show two episodes about Numbered in a cinema, and my immediate reaction was, ah, that would be awkward because they'll probably laugh over the next line of dialogue and, you know, but interestingly, we had, we had cut it in such a way that did accommodate because I think there was like one line of dialogue got missed, you know? So something about the rhythms in the way we were cutting it did correspond to how an audience would react, which was surprising and then quite reassuring. Yeah. I guess, in a sense, that's uh, what what you're saying there is similar to what you were saying about the difference between uh, writing for radio and writing for TV. That it's not essentially um, beyond, like you say, that sort of honesty and having to have more laughs. I suppose in the audience show, there's there's, there's, there's not a huge difference. But uh, do do you have a, a, a preference for uh, audience versus non-audience in terms of? the producing and the, the overall creation of the show no i don't think i, I think i have a preference to do both I yeah think that, yeah that, that being able to do both is great yeah do work get paid yeah uh, <laughs> well yeah. yeah be able to do anything that's true we might not it would be... do anything with audiences ever again so you know but one thing that would be uh, interesting is obviously lots and lots of our listeners uh, they love sitcoms but they they like writing sitcoms they're writing pilot scripts and all that kind of stuff and trying to make their way um firstly i mean is there any advice that you have for them but actually is there any advice that really sticks out that you were given along the way maybe from an unexpected source or what what could you pass on to those people who will hopefully not um replace all of us too soon okay yeah uh guy do you want to start I've got a um stubborn persistence is a is a good start i would say you know that that probably it's the most undervalued quality there's probably a lot of people who were very talented who just you know bang their head against that brick wall for so long that they they gave up um i don't know i, I think i would say just don't don't try and don't try and write a success you know don't try and 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 copy something that is that is good just just sort of trust in your own sense of humor and and originality i mean when there was a point that used to read scripts for hat trick and a lot of them to be fair were technically really good but they just didn't they just didn't have that that sort of breath of originality and, and surprise um so i mean so I think you've just got to write what you find funny. I mean, there'll be a few people whose sense of humour is so bizarre that no one else on earth will find it funny. But I think still that's probably the yeah that's probably the the the, the only thing you can do. Yeah, I've got I can think of two things that um, that I was talking to Tony Hawk recently, and he said that he'd been asked to do a. Uh, a writer's course and then one of the exercises he did with them you know they'd written um five minute pieces or something and he said to one of them right okay i want you to read um so and so script and then um i want you to give them notes and i want you to be as rude as possible <laughs> you know because he said to them this is nothing you are gonna this is if you want to be writers you are gonna hear lots of stuff that doesn't sound very nice about what you've written and you have to not, you have to not treat it as if it's personal. You meant, um, but I thought it was quite a good way of illustrating <laughs> that that issue. And it, you know, because that doesn't get there isn't a module for that on most writing courses. You know, there isn't a module for acquiring that sort of thick skin and and resilience. Um, the best bit of individual advice I ever received was um, Guy and I wrote for a, a series of satirical dramas called Tickets for the Titanic many years ago uh, in the early 80s I think and one I wrote 
which was called Checkpoint Chiswick, was directed by a man called Cyril Coke. And Cyril Coke was a veteran TV director, and he'd done some wonderful pieces. He directed Malice of Forethought, and he was, you know, and he was this lovely, uh, elegant, David Niven-style Englishman. And he very kindly, I said to him, can I come out on location and just hang about on set and sit on set? And he said, yeah, you're fine. He was very welcoming, and he would let me sit by camera. Anyway, so one day there was a... Um, well he taught me two things but the first thing he taught me was um i said to him one day what's the secret Cyril, the long career you know in television what's what's the one thing that you should always remember and he he considered it for a moment and then he turned to me and he said never work with lemons (laughs) and it's fundamentally right i mean i felt that kate and coach i don't know about guy but i i remember being in studio and thinking this is going to be all right. This is going to work because we've got good people. We've got very good actors and we've got really good crew. You know, it's going to work. And and I think so that, you know, as a kind of uh, mantra, never work with lemons is pretty good, I think. And then the other thing he taught me, which I try to remember to do to, that, to this day, is I watched him in rehearsal and he would always sit down and put his feet on a chair. And I said to him one day, do you do, why do you do that? Do you feel more comfortable doing that? And he said, no. He said, I do it because if you put your feet on a chair, it's more effort to get up. And what he'd worked out was that a lot of directors annoy the artist by constantly being in their faces with notes. So what Cyril did was it stopped him being up and down like a jack-in-the-box. You know, he would when he had something to say, he would take his feet off the chair and he'd get up and he'd do the notes in organised groups rather than constantly going back at the actors. So, um, but it was interesting, that composure that he, ha- that he had, it was planned, you know, it wasn't just him. But, um, but they were... So put your feet up is the advice. <laughs> well, that's the directing end. But I mean, that, I think, <laughs> you know, what's... I think the Never Work With Lemons is... is I mean, we, you can't always avoid working with lemons. When you're starting out, it's a world run by lemons, you know. But, but um, you know, as time goes by, you naturally, you naturally gravitate towards the people who are on your wavelength and, and you get a sense of who's good at their job and who isn't. And I think that's, that's something that happens, you know. Um, so that's, that, that's the bit that sticks with me. Fantastic. And uh, whereabouts are we? Sorry, just just to uh, having had that one last question, but I just wondered in terms of series two of uh, Kate and Koji, what's the uh, what, what, what's the uh, ETA of that? Yeah, well, we're, we're scheduled to film in January um, and exactly how and in what form we don't know yet, um, but that's the plan. Um, and broadcasting oh are we allowed to say guy or is it is it um probably not oh they're very (laughs) the schedule is very sometime sometime after that but not too long after that sometime yeah you're not broadcasting it before you filmed it (laughs) yeah we we got in trouble last time well i got in trouble well that's uh uh, it's great to, to know that's going to be happening any more outnumbered at all i don't know we what did we say we said that we we said as a joke, I think, in a very early series that we might, you know, we might stop when Karen gets married. But I suppose she could now. So um, yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind having one more visit. You know. Well, uh, I did a joke the other day. I was I was plugging a book on a local re- on um, no, it was on um, uh, Good Morning Television, and um, they asked me that question, and I said um, something along the lines of. Yeah, well, we probably will, you know, pop in on that family and, we, you know, we'll do an, an episode where Karen's in prison and they go visit her and stuff. And um, <laughs> he didn't write me afterwards. But I just went away and I just thought, hmm, is there, <laughs> you know. But, but yeah, we, we hope to do some, um, you know, to drop in on the family, but it's, um, you know, it, it's fine in the moment. 
Okay, well, that's been uh, absolutely uh, fantastic, illuminating time that we spent with you. And uh, I'm amazed that you've actually found the time to talk to us between the writing 17 scripts that get rejected by the BBC uh, in that time. Um, but it's, it's been great and we really appreciate having you on the show. And um, thanks very much and all the best for the next series of Kate and Koji and everything else that's coming up. And um, so I'll say goodbye. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, I hope you have a good, yeah, another 150. We, <laughs> oh, yeah, my goodness. It's the next 150. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll bring goodness. you back for episode 300 when uh, oh. Karen, Karen's just getting out, uh, having served life. <laughs> <laughs>